that's, I think, part of the reason why mainstream is so hostile to MMT. And to some extent, it's about the things we're saying and the, and the conclusions we come to. But to a lot of extent, it's actually more, I, th I think, about the personalities and the language we're using and the tone that we use to say it. Because they've got a system and they've got an inst institutions and a community and there are rules. And here's how you, you know, you, you're supposed to publish in the journals and blah, 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 blah. And, uh, and not communicate with the general public. And if you communicate with the general public, then you're obviously going to use much more colloquial language. Yeah, well, it, the idea is that the, the techno elite here decide what is valid theory. The people who run the journals and the peer reviewers and stuff get to decide what is economics. And so what MMT is doing is to sidestep that and say, we're going straight to the people. You, you guys weren't listening to us when we were trying to talk to you earlier. So what we're going to do now is just take this straight to the people, take it to the policymakers even, take it to the media, and force you to pay attention to us. And I think that is more threatening to mainstream economics than probably the policy conclusions. Welcome to Activist MMT, a podcast about nonviolent MMT direct activism, introducing modern monetary theory to the world and conversations about learning MMT together. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today is part two of my two-part conversation with Sam Levy on the fundamental assumptions that underlie mainstream or neoclassical economics. Sam is a research scholar with the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity, a PhD candidate in economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, or UMKC, and a co-founder of the online advocacy group Deficit Owls. Much more information and resources can be found in the show notes to part one, but for now, Let's get right back to our conversation. dialectical, you might even say, process between individuals and society, between individuals and organizations, between organizations and bigger organizations or the government. Um, it, it's much more of a two-way process that involves mutual adjustment. And we have to keep in mind which one of those actors has the monopoly on violence, right? It is the state. And, and there's a reason that, that dictatorships have a reputation for ruthless efficiency, Huh. It's because if you have one person in charge who just dictates everything that's going to happen, well, then, you know, they're just going to get it all done. Everything, you know, you cut out the obstruction, you cut out the bickering, the negotiation, the back and forth. You just do what I say and make it happen now or else you're dead. Well, mm. then, you know, things are going to happen quickly and it can be ruthlessly efficient. I'm not saying that, I mean, I'm not obviously not endorsing that kind of thing, but <laughs> this idea that like, you know that uh, that the the only way for things to be efficient is 
out there through haggling in the market is just like profoundly ahistorical and ignores all the ways that laws shape practically everything that happens in markets. And it, I mean, the, the power exists. It's just a matter of where it's going to be. You know, it's it's just a choice of distribution as opposed to, you know, the government is helpless. Actually, the Neil Wilson, who was just uh, on uh, talking with Phil Armstrong at GIMS I feel like a week or so ago, uh, I I didn't know who this person was before listening to this, but he gave a really good analogy of the government or any entity, but but specifically the government is like the the plane works just fine. It's just the crew is awful. We need a new crew. And, you know, the, if we're ever going to get to our destination, we need a new crew, an entirely new crew. The plane works just fine, which I think is an interesting way of, you know, getting rid of this, this or at least addressing this ideology of government is terrible, market is great kind of a thing. Well, um, you know, I would go farther than that, though. I agree we need a new crew. The current crew is especially bad. But it's also true that the process by which the crew is selected has a lot of problems. And so if all we do is say, hey, out with the old crew, let's get a new one, but we keep selecting crews with the same process, then we're going to keep getting bad crews. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. The process with which the crew is decided. That's that's a much better way of saying it. Um, okay. So these mainstream assumptions, which which are like, you know, really disconnected from reality, such as, you know, you can predict the future, but, and I, and I know that this might not be, accepted by all mainstream economists, but like even some of the ones that you've said of, of, uh, of you know, loanable funds uh, or these, which does not square with, with reality and, and the, the ability of being able to predict the future with probabilistic certainty, which is under the assumption that you have all information, but you know that, you know, the dice is only going to be a number six, one sixth of the time. So you don't know what it's going to be, but you know, with probabilistic certainty, what it, that it will be a six at you know a six of the time, so these things that are completely disconnected from reality, and actually uh, you know this brings up the crazy assumptions that it doesn't matter if the assumptions are crazy as long as the predictability of the model overall is okay. So assuming that the predictability is is that it can predict okay, and actually a really wonderful uh, example of this, um, if you know a, a Pakistani uh, economist named Asad Zaman who uh, I'm actually releasing part one with him tonight. Uh, he gave a really wonderful analogy of this, of let's assume that the moon is actually painted on a heavenly sphere around the earth. <laughs> I'm like, wow. I'm like that really, you could really capture quite a lot of the behavior of the moon that way. But then if you, if you take that assumption and you try and like take it farther of, of how the moon interacts with the earth or, you know, it, you, you can come up the, the, based on those assumptions, like really insane stuff. Um, so it's, it just seems to me that these, these crazy assumptions make it extremely difficult to number one, to reproduce their methods and number two, to prove their conclusions right or wrong, which implies that it's, it's ideology and it's not, objective in any sense. I wonder what you think about that. Well, it depends. Um, I mean, like, uh, the way that macro models have been mainstream macroeconomic models, the way that they decided is the right way to validate those models to see if they're, if they work or not, if they're good is to, um, like simulate the model. So run the model and see what it predicts and do that a bunch of times and kind of figure out on average, what does it predict? And in particular, how does it respond to shocks? 
So if there's just some random disturbance in the model, well, how does the model say that GDP is going to react to that? Or how does the model say that the price level is going to react to that or the, you know, the, C, the inflation rate or whatever? And then compare that to real world time series data on GDP or the inflation rate or something like that and see, and see if, they, if the properties of those, the statistical properties of those two data sets seem to link up. And if they do, we say, hey, the model seems to be working. Right. Well, that, you know, that's data based and it's, you know, vaguely empirical and it sounds kind of reasonable. But, you know, at the same time, when you talk about complex systems, right, highly nonlinear systems with lots of moving parts, feedback mechanisms, emergent properties, sensitivity to initial conditions, high dimensional systems that have a lot of variables, you can get all kinds of different models that will reproduce the same properties of the data, the same statistics like that. The model could say all kinds of different stuff and still produce the same statistics. I mean, it's kind of like um, some of your listeners might be familiar with the problem of overfitting in statistics. So overfitting is when you have a bunch of data points, okay, and you're trying to fit a curve through them. You're trying to fit some line that can explain the data points. You know, you've probably seen a bunch of data points with a line through them. And you don't have to just fit lines through data. You can fit curves, you know, you can fit curves that go, you know, that look like U's or that, you know, look like all kinds of crazy curvy shapes. And the thing is, the more curviness, like the more times you allow the line to curve, like to be curve shaped instead of just straight, the more perfectly it can fit the data. And if you allow the if you allow the the curve you're trying to draw to like have as many curves as there are data points, then the line the the the, the thing you fit is going to fit through every data point exactly, right? Because it, it has enough free parameters or free space or degrees of freedom might be the term you use. It has enough freedom to adjust to fit the data set exactly. If you have like 50 data points and you're going to fit a curve that can curve in 50 different directions, then that curve is going to pass through every single data point, right? Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you only allow the curve to, to swoop around to curve like two or three times, then it's not going to pass through every data point because, you know, chances are pretty good that any kind of curve you can draw with only two or three bends in it is just not going to line up with all of your random number data or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. So the problem of overfitting is when you allow too many possibilities, like you allow the thing to curve 50 times. And so it's going to curve through all 50 data points, even though almost certainly in the real world, any model that, you know, actually describes what's actually happening would not look like that would not be some crazy curve that goes through every data point. Exactly. It would be some gentle curve that, you know, captures some of the important properties of the data, but doesn't capture every single, you know, to the 10th decimal place or whatever, because there's measurement mm -hmm. error and there's random fluctuations and there's all kinds of reasons that even if your model's pretty good, you'd expect it not to line up with the data exactly. So overfitting is a big problem in statistics and especially like in machine learning, which is one of the things I'm interested in. Um, machine mm -hmm. learning models have like thousands or millions of parameters and so they can overfit like crazy. But anyway, once you start having a big enough model then overfitting becomes a real problem. And like, that's kind of what I guess I would say is really happening in, um, in those mainstream models when you validate them that way. You try to create a model that actually turns out to have enough degrees of freedom that it can fit basically anything. 
And then when you fit it to the real world data and lo and behold, it fits perfectly and you say, ah, look how great my model is. It fits perfectly, right? Like that's not actually good science. Mm. Um, and so for, for, from the heterodox perspective, it's not that, that's, that doing that kind of statistical exercise is worthless because it's not worthless because if, if, you're, if it's not possible for your model to match the real world data, then something must be wrong. But merely matching that kind of high level statistical data is not evidence enough for us. Like we want to dive in and see that the mechanisms actually correspond to real things and to real behavior, as opposed to just like assuming it does, which in some cases is what they do. Is ensuring uh, that the assumptions make sense, which is basically institutionalism, that we make sure that the process works before we even consider the conclusions that we draw. Yeah, I mean, there's a famous quote from Milton Friedman that I think you were referencing earlier where he argues like the assumptions don't matter, even if the model's real unrealistic, that's totally fine. And in fact, he says, the more unrealistic, the better, because that must mean that we're really getting to the heart of something if the model, you know, can still work its magic, even if it sounds kind of unrealistic, right? Right, and it, it, makes it, it makes it such that they can do whatever they want because their assumptions are so insane, you can't reproduce their work. Well, I mean, you can reproduce it. I mean, like, they'll, you know, they'll post, they'll, a research paper will have the equations and it'll tell you where they got the data from and you can, you can run all, all their- All right, but you their... feel like a complete idiot reproducing these insane assumptions, I would think. <laughs> I mean, a lot of it goes back to the micro foundations issue, to the methodological individualism. If you insist on modeling the economy as like one person or just like a couple of people who make choices, then, you know- your model can do all kind. It can do anything. <laughs> it could do anything that a person might choose to do. Um, yeah. And so, you know, it's got a veneer of science to it, right? It's numerical. It's difficult to understand. It's got code. It's got mathematics. It's got statistics. Um, but the, the methodology is just really not, not designed to, to bring you to truth necessarily. Like in the, in the, in truth, in the, in the sense of the things that, we prioritize as heterodox economists, right? Which is like mm -hmm. realism, making sense of the world and not necessarily like trying to build some abstract baseline model, which is kind of more important for them. Mm -hmm. Okay. And actually speaking of Milton Friedman, he, there's another quote that I wanted to ask you about, which is um, I, I spoke about money neutrality with uh, Professor Zaman, uh, which is going to be part two next week as of we're recording this. Um, and I have a follow-up question regarding that. It's based on a Milton Friedman quote. He says, the nominal quantity of money has no effect on the real performance of the macro economy aside from causing inflation. So my question is, how is inflation not real? Because <laughs> the, the main fear of the general public is inflation. And the main scaremongering of you know, mainstream media and, and everyone is inflation. So how does that have anything to do with the neutrality of money if it only causes inflation? Well, inflation is pretty real in people's minds. Yeah, sure. So, uh, okay, by real, what they mean is like related to goods and services and production, right? So for them, this is, this is what money neutrality means is that money is a veil. Like, all the all the things about goods and services, all the real stuff is determined by real variables. All the things about goods and services are determined by like our productive capacity, the population, the capitals, like how much machines we have, like that kind of stuff determines output, determines how much we produce and how many people have jobs and stuff. 
And all that money does is like come in at the end and determine like the, the numbers that we attach. It's the numeraire, it's the accounting, right? All it does is like, you know, how come you earn $20 an hour and you, you know, buy a shirt for 10 as opposed to you earn $2,000 an hour and buy a shirt for 1000, right? Like th for them, that's the only, and, and this is a little bit of an older view, but still for, for them in this money neutrality thing, that's the only thing money does. It comes in and it sets the numeraire. It sets like how big the numbers are, the scale of the accounting, but it doesn't determine the real stuff, the productive stuff, how much real, how many shirts there are or how many, how many hours people work for them. Money has nothing to do with that, at least in the long run. There, there was, yeah, there was kind of a period where people were arguing, okay, money is neutral all the time. It has never, never has anything to do with production or anything. Uh, it's always a veil. And then kind of the more standard view now is that money is neutral in the long run. So in the long run, output and employment and all that are determined by, you know, real stuff, supply side factors. But in the short run, there can be some divergence, you know, which is why monetary policy is important. It matters how much money we print because in the short run, it might, you know, there might be some more output because of it, but then eventually it goes away. Okay. What, what really brought home the neutrality of money for me is that the government's spending money on a bad thing or not spending money on what's desperately needed can cause mass suffering and death. That's what, that's what shows that money is not neutral. It is not, it is not neutral where the neutrality implies that there's nothing about spending or not spending money that can actually kill people, which in, you know, in the more generic senses affect real resources. So that, that's what brought it home for me. I know that that's not exactly correct, but, but, but I, I had no clue what that meant before. And, the, and just the fact that spending or not spending can cause death. Well, um, for them, for them, um, especially in, especially in the older framework, it's going away, but uh, how the quantity of money, like how much money there is, is something that the central bank decides and doesn't really have much to do with government spending most of the time, right? And so, so what you're talking about, like what the government spends on, the priorities and and what they who they give money to, for for them, that's like a separate set of decisions from how much money is there, which is like the central bank, and you know the central bank is independent and that whole thing, and so they're questioning, like they're talking more about central bank policy. I think today for us, especially for MMT and the post-Keynesians and endogenous money and all that, we think that the quantity of money reacts to, to, to the economy, to market conditions. And so mm -hmm. nobody determines it, but it is possible that if the government spends more then okay, so now there's some more income. And so now people have more financial savings. So maybe they want to keep some of it in the form of money. So maybe money gets created to accommodate that. So maybe it's possible that if the government tries to spend more than the quantity of money would go up, but like, who knows, anything could happen, right? And so for, for you and me, public priorities and what the government spends on are a little bit more linked to this money neutrality issue than it would have been for, for monetarists at the time, right? For them, like Milton Friedman was advocating the like, uh, the um, uh, I'm forgetting the nickname here, but what he said the central bank should do is just like, you know, automate, take the guy away from the computer and just put like one of those, uh, you know, those like flappy bird things that are on the axle. Oh yeah. That like, bounce yeah. up and down that Homer yeah. uses when he wants yeah, to exactly, time, exactly. Wants time off. <laughs> yeah. So use that. That runs to, by water. That runs by water. Exactly. Exactly. Use that to determine how much money there is. Just like that, just steadily <laughs> increase the quantity of money at some fixed percent rate and nobody, and don't worry about it. Don't do anything else. And so for them, 
that's money neutrality is about that kind of thing. The central bank deciding how much money there is. And it's not about public priorities for us though. We would say they're linked because for us, money is the thing that creates unemployment. The monetary system and the government's monopoly on its own currency are, is the source of unemployment. And, you know, also, uh, like, um, how the government puts financial resources out there is by spending, right. Or by taxing or deciding who to tax. So for us, those political issues are linked intrinsically and you can't get rid of those links, but for them, it's not. And actually it's actually the expanding of the money supply, you know, monetarism, let's expand the money supply or decrease the money supply. Like that's the most important thing that implies that the government should do nothing except for pour money out there because they don't make decisions. Only people in the market makes decisions. They're, Uh, They're deferring those decisions in this, in this view of just manage the money supply. Well, I think it's just that they're separate. Like the government, they, you know, they still, there's still a government and it's still doing stuff and exactly what stuff it is, you know, depends on your political preference and who you ask. But for them, this managing of the money supply thing is just like a separate technical thing. Money is like a technical, you know, it's, it's, it's like technocratic for them. And for us, it's not for us. It's political. Okay. Okay. Uh, all right. Uh, I have some meta questions, but I have one more specific question and that is, as I understand it, main and I actually I, sh- I just read um, uh, Steve Keen's second edition of uh, Debunking Economics, which I understood probably twenty five percent, but it was so good, it was really good. Um, I have to read it. I have to obviously just have to keep reading it. Um, but one of the points he makes is that uh, a primary co- and I think it's this is Minsky that a primary cause of the Great Depression and of the Great Recession and just basically instability is that mainstream ignores credit and debt. And I, and I think that this means by inherently private sector, non-government sector, debt and credit. Can you, I, I don't know if this is necessarily directly linked to the idea of assumptions, but can you address that issue? And I, did I say that correctly? Yeah, yeah. So there's like a hilarious irony here, which is that mainstream economics is like obsessed with government debt um, but totally ignores private debt the vast majority of the time. And in fact, I, I don't know how common this view ever was, but at least there was a, at one point a view that private debt doesn't matter at all because, again, this is focusing on money. Money is special. If you borrow money, all it does is transfer money from somebody to somebody else. So what's the big deal? Like it's the same amount of money still there, right? Um, mm. So I don't know. It's kind of it's kind of bizarre that that sense that, Government debt, very important, a catastrophe waiting to happen. Private debt, on the other hand, like, who cares? Um, huh, that's of course- interesting. Is it just a, that's another opposite world. It's focusing, it's focusing on something that is meaningless, in a sense, as the, the quantity of debt, where it's completely ignoring. It, there, there's so many contradictions like that. If I had to guess where that one comes from, I would guess that it's probably because there have been many visible examples of governments in debt crises, Right. And from an MMT perspective, we're looking at like almost 100 percent of them have been non-sovereign in the sense we define it. Right. So we're talking about a government that doesn't issue its own currency. So that's like Greece. Right. Or we're talking about a government with a fixed exchange rate um, like Russia had. Uh, for, for us, it's, it's those kinds of issues that create those government debt crises. But either way, they're public and they're visible, whereas private debt crises you maybe don't hear about as much, right? Like, because it's a lot of, it's, it's a lot of people having a problem at once, but they're kind of having it separately. 
So, so, so credit and debt, private credit and debt um, is a major driver or the major driver of the Great Depression and Great Recession. But those who suffered with that private debt, you know, defaulting were far away from the levers of power. So we could easily screw them and they won't, they don't make the news. Yeah. Um, yeah, you said it. I mean, I think like the mainstream story on the Great Depression, as far as I can tell, at least, uh, I, I was poking around um, some mainstream textbooks to see what they had to say about that question. And it seems to me that like the they interpret it as there was a financial crisis. Financial crises just happen sometimes. It's, it, you know, it just kind of happens. And really the problem was, I think the, the prevailing view seems to be that the Fed did it. The Fed turned what would have been an ordinary recession, you know, every so often the stock market crashes and there's a recession, whatever. But then the Fed came in and they started shrinking the money supply and not, you know, dealing with this crisis properly. And that made it, that escalated it, right? Then it turned into a banking crisis and a banking panic and there were bank runs and then prices started falling. The money supply started shrinking. So I think the mainstream view places a lot of blame on the Fed for letting like what could have been a normal garden variety bad situation just spiral out of control. But the Fed, but the central bank is completely helpless against interest rates, bond vigilantes. They can cause the Great Depression, but they're helpless against bonds vigilantes. <laughs> Go on. Sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, so I don't know that they are that interested in why the stock market crash, or at least not in the undergraduate textbooks that I was looking over about about that question. Um, as you say, Steve Keen has got a couple of charts that are pretty suggestive about how levels of private debt were were rising very, very quickly, like right until 1929 and 2008. Um, and from a Minskyan point of view, you know, as debt rises and income doesn't rise proportionally or asset prices stop rising, then you start to have payment commitments you can't meet. You get borrowers that are pushed into this this, this uh, state that he calls Ponzi, where basically yeah. you, you have to borrow to, to make the interest payments even on your debt. You have to borrow even more. So then your debt is just like exploding upward until you can't pay. And then you have to default, right? You can't make the payments you promised. And then, mm -hmm. well, if there's a lot of debt and a lot of interconnected debt, then other people can't make the payments they promised either once your payment doesn't go through. And then that just ripples through to more and more people who can't make payments. And then people have to start selling assets at fire sale prices, right, to try to make these payments they're supposed to make. And so then you get market crashes and, you know, whether it's the housing market crash or the stock market crash or whatever. And so that's kind of the Minskyan explanation for for those uh, those historical events. Another, mm -hmm. another explanation that I think is pretty interesting um, is in a book I'm reading right now. It's called Winter War by Eric Rauschway. And it's a good book and it's, it's about the... Um, transition of power between Hoover and FDR in 1932 and 1933 and about how Hoover was basically trying to sabotage FDR and the New Deal. So it's a pretty huh. interesting book. But one of the things that he highlights in the book is that like a really pressing issue in that election was farm policy. And he's arguing that um, through the 19-teens and early 20s, farmers had like built up a lot of capacity because the U.S. was exporting a lot of food. And so farmers were, you know, they were producing a lot of crops in order to be able to do that. Um, but then, you know, for conditions changed, you know, tariff war started happening and, you know, other world conditions changed. And so the U.S. wasn't exporting as much food anymore. 
And so now farmers have all these crops and there's nobody to buy them. And so farm prices, you know, uh, food prices start just plunging. Um, and so you get that same kind of thing. It's a, it's a similar kind of Minskyan dynamic of like you're trying to, you know, if you're a farmer and you're trying to, you have debt payments you have to make and, but you know, you have the prices of your, of your crops are falling and so you can't make your payments, you know, so you've got bankruptcies there. So anyway, just kind of musing here, but, um, mm -hmm. uh, so there's some interesting dynamics that go on in these crises that have to do with, with asset prices and with, uh, commodities prices. And really the best way to study is, is to learn Minsky, right? The, the explanation that, oh, the fed did it is like, it's, I mean, I, this just tells you very little. Um, and the, and the and uh, the alternative idea that workers just wanted to take vacations all at the same time. Oh, the great vacation! Yeah, uh, that's another <laughs> great vacation. <laughs> I hadn't heard that title. Okay, so th that theory comes from the, around the 1970s. Um, just so, just to give you a little bit of macro history here, you know, the uh, Keynes published uh, the general theory in 1936, and then World War II really. Uh, governments had to, they were spending massive amounts of money and running huge deficits. And that kind of was like, sort of proved that, okay, fiscal policy can create full employment. We all agree now. And then you've got the Keynesian era, kind of from the 40s to the 60s, when governments were very conscientious about trying to pursue full employment policies. And, and whether they were successful or not, it's another issue. But, you know, the, the consensus was, we can run deficits to to stimulate the economy, to prime the pump so that we you know, aim for full employment. In the 70s, that starts to get questioned. And in particular, it, it starts to get replaced with this monetarist view, but also this view called real business cycle. And real business cycle refers to like the series of models. And a couple of the characters here are like Robert Lucas um, and, and another guy named Sargent and uh, Kidlin Prescott. And anyway, um, what, what these guys are saying, what happens in these models, and it really is quite ridiculous, is uh, the, the original impetus for it, I think, was not so bad. The original impetus for it is something called the Lucas Critique, where Lucas argues, hey, the models that you've been using, they don't account for how people change their behavior when conditions change, right? It just says, like, you know, maybe it just says households spend 60% of their income or something like that. It doesn't account for how that might change if you change policies. Like, for instance, an example that Lucas gives in the paper is like, what if we have a temporary tax cut? So we, we, we lower the taxes just this year in the, in the hopes that businesses will invest more, but then the taxes are going to go up next year. And so if you use the old school, the old Keynesian way of thinking, then that should say, well, businesses are going to spend more because the tax rate goes down, so they have more income, so blah, blah, blah. But in, in Lucas is saying, well, we don't know that because if people know that taxes are going to go up next year, they know it's a temporary tax cut, then they're going to adjust their behavior. They'll, they will actually maybe not spend more now because they have to pay the taxes next year, so they'll just save it. So their spending will actually go down now so that they can pay the taxes that they're going to own next year or whatever, right? So that's, that's kind of a valid critique, the Lucas critique, the idea that that uh, behavior can change in response to policy, and you, so you can't assume it's fixed. But then they just go totally overboard, off the rails with this thing. <laughs> and, and this is really where the micro foundations comes in. You get, you get people start saying, we can't have any model that doesn't have people in it and 
and model exactly how they respond to, to these things, model exactly the changes in behavior. If you don't have that, it's not a valid model, right? That's where it, it really goes off the rails. So in the models they start producing, they start to say, and this is where rational expectations comes into, which you were talking a little bit about earlier. Rational mm-hmm. expectations is this idea that, okay, people make decisions based on like probabilities and on average, let's say they're not wrong. Okay, on average, they know what's going on and they react accordingly. And so on average, that means people are really smart, first of all. It means they're going to get things right, which means they're not going to be wrong about like prices and stuff. And they're not going to be wrong about like employment and things like that. I mean, it's even more problematic than that, really, because, well, how do people determine what, you know, what is correct? Well, they use the model that you are building, right? So what you do is you assume that whatever the model you're making is, it's correct. And the people in the model use the model to know what to do. Oh my. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's kind of nutty. Um, but anyway, in the models they start to build, they start to say, well, wait a minute, like why should markets ever be out of equilibrium? Like supply and demand, maybe, you know, a minute or two here or there, but really markets should be in equilibrium, perfectly running functionally smoothly markets clearing a hundred percent of the time. Because if they, right, and actually, yeah. if I may inject here, so mm-hmm. even, so there's also Say's law, which is related to that, which is like, so maybe the labor market is down, but overall, the entire economy is fine because the other sectors are, you know, are are high. So that overcompensates for the labor market being down. So overall, we're okay. Well, this is even stronger than that. This is just all markets always clear all the time, right? That's how the models work. It's called continue, okay. continuous market clearing. Nothing is ever out of balance for at all in the model, right? Okay. And so therefore, the labor market is never out of balance either. There is no involuntary unemployment. Mm. Labor supply and labor demand are always equal because prices adjust instantaneously to make this happen, right? If need be, and behavior adjusts instantaneously, rational expectations and all that. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at, you take that kind of model and... Well, how do they explain changes in GDP and stuff? Okay, from the Keynesian point of view, it's about spending, right? Spending goes up, so then you got to produce more to meet the demand, and so you're going to employ people, whatever, so GDP and employment go up, right? But from this perspective, there is no involuntary unemployment, and so there's no, you know, there's no, spending never falls short of what the economy can produce. So for them, they're looking at productivity. They're saying, well, it must be the case that if GDP goes up, then there was some kind of productivity shock that made it go up. We became more productive and workers knowing that they're more productive, now they're going to get they're going to get a higher wage from that. And so it's more in their interest to work more. So employment goes up because productivity goes up. It's it's really it's totally crazy, right? Mm. Like they're saying workers know that they're working harder or that they're more productive for whatever reason and they know that that means they get paid more. Of course that's obviously not true in real life. But they know they're going to get paid more, and so they choose to work more, and so there's more employment. And on the mm-hmm. on the reverse, if productivity goes down, there's some productivity shock. For some reason, workers are less productive. That must mean, because wages are tied to productivity in this fictional universe, that must mean workers are going to get paid less. And if they're going to get paid less, then they're going to choose to work less. And so that's why employment goes down. And this is where this great vacation thing comes in. 
the Great Vacation says, okay, employment went down in the, in the Great Depression. That must have been because there was some big productivity shock. So workers choose to work less in response. Okay, all kinds of problems here. The whole model is totally fake. None of that stuff happens in real life. Uh, the linkage between productivity and wages is like not real at all. Um, we know that workers were not voluntarily taking time off from work. That was not what was going on, right? <laughs> the Great Vacation was was a a, a a mocking like term, right? That that didn't come from the people who were pushing this view, but that was in response. Like, if this is true, then the Great Depression was a Great Vacation, right? And then probably one of the worst things of all is. It, it's kind of sensible what a, what a positive productivity shock means. It, you can kind of think of things that would make productivity go up. Like maybe there's some new invention or maybe we, you know, I don't know, tear down a tariff or something, whatever. You can think of some things that make productivity go up. But it's kind of really hard to think of anything that makes productivity go down, especially at the level of the economy as a whole, Right. And so there's this one story, I'm going to totally butcher the story, but where some economist was asking one of the proponents of this view, like, what are these negative productivity shocks? What is, what is it? What's an example? They were like alone and good friends or whatever. And the guy just had no answer. All he has is like, I don't know, the traffic out there, maybe like that's a negative productivity shock. It's, it's, okay. it's just, it just doesn't refer to anything. It's just nonsense, right? Okay. It's all okay. totally ideological, right? You're trying to build a model from first principles and 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 not only that but it's from people who who can't really have been like have been so steep in economics that they can't understand how normal people think of the world and normal people well, interact mean, with the economy all of these are excuses to not do observation if they go out and they start talking to people then they'll they'll see that it's not a great vacation you know or if they go out to these bread lines and start talking to people and then go start talking to the bosses that fired them or laid them off because they had to, you know, that, the, this things would obviously, you know, their models would change that they wouldn't be making these assumptions. It, it, it's an excuse to not go out and observe. It's an excuse to not be inductive in a sense. And, and, and if you can assume that people are rational because, you know, these models are in the newspaper every day or whatever on TV, radio every day, then there is no need to do that. That's another excuse to not do observation. And that implies that there's no need to do any historical analysis and that there's no need to do any cultural analysis like of another country because all people are the same. <laughs> and there's no need to do any institutional analysis either. It's all these excuses to, to not have to do anything except for sit in your office and ask, what would I do if I were? It's it's just all of these excuses to to not have to go out and connect and make sure that what you've assumed actually connects to the real world. And I think the historical one is is really especially bad. The cultural one is quite bad too, but the historical one, you know, history marks people, right? Like the people who lived through the Great Depression, it shaped their thinking in in ways that that you know couldn't be erased. But then when when you get to the 1970s and you're talking to people who like weren't around for that, um, stuff that would have been like unquestionable un, stuff that is just like, you know, in your bones, you don't even have to say it. If you lived through the great depression is like, you know, questionable. If you weren't around, you're like, well, you know, you just don't have the lived experience to, to really grok what was happening at the time. And so you, so these kind of nonsense theories sound totally plausible to you, you know? Right. 
Yeah. I mean, I think, I think like, like one thing that just to draw it to, to recent history a little bit, you know, we, we don't remember what it was like in the 1930s. I don't know what it was like in the 1930s. All I know is what I've read. And right now we're living through some very tumultuous history. Like this election is totally crazy, but people a hundred years from now, they're not going to, they're not going to know that just the raw, the raw experience that with that visceralness and that, that those feelings of anxiety that people have and all that, and what it's like to see all this stuff on the news and, you know, it's just not the same if you don't live through it. And and that's very true for economic history as well. It's it's hard to understand what it was like in a society that's very different from yours. And when when society changes as fast as it does now in the modern era, you know, I mean, like a thousand years ago, if you talk to a person and then you talk to like their ancestor from 300 years before that, they would have lived very similar lives, Right. But today it's not like that. I can't even understand what life was like 300 years ago. I can barely understand what life was like 50 years ago. You know, and, and I know people who were alive 50 years ago. And it's, I, I, I believe Christian said this on either, I don't, I don't think it was to you. I think it might've been to Robert Hockett, but it was like Warren Moser says, people don't remember what it was like to have a good economy because we have not lived through one or good society even really, neoliberalism. So we just assume that we have to be abused. And it's like people don't understand that it's possible to not be abused, let alone be treated well. So it's it's easy, unfortunately, to be able to convince people because they know nothing different. Um, uh, okay, so all of these assumptions, these things are just completely disconnected from reality. How much of it is... We truly believe that this is how people actually behave and all of these things, all of these things, I mean, setting aside like loanable funds, which really has nothing to do with individuals. How much do they think, how much is it actually that, that we believe that people actually behave this way and believe these things in reality or that we don't actually believe that they can predict the future and so on, that these things that are clearly insane but these assumptions make our models and our maths easier to understand and to do, but it doesn't change the predictive power of our models. Is it entirely the latter? I'm assuming that it's one of those two things, that there's not a third option here. Yeah, that's a really good question. I'm going to say um, that uh, I think there are two, I think there actually are two categories and only one of them is one that you said. <laughs> Um, I think almost nobody is in the, like, take the model super, super literally camp. Everybody understands to some extent, at least that the model is that all these models that people make are imperfect, uh, snapshots of reality that are, are meant to capture some elements and necessarily exclude others. I do think it's true that once you've been trying to build model those kinds of models for a long time, the assumptions become more and more plausible to you, right? Um, you, you understand at the beginning that you're making some simplifications. Towards the end, you're not thinking about that. You know, you're doing it for a couple decades. You're not thinking so much about to what extent different uh, assumptions are simplifications. But I think Especially everybody... Especially if you don't go out and observe. 
but, but I think everybody does understand that all models are simplifications. Like a, 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 a catchphrase you'll hear occasionally is like, all models are false, some are useful, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's, that is understood. On the other hand, the two camps that I, that I would look at are um, like, on, on the one hand, the people who, who want to take the model literally, but understand that it's imperfect. Like we have to make some simplifications to get somewhere, but maybe in the future we'll have better models that that don't. On the other hand, there's kind of the what what I would call the like take it seriously but not literally crowd, which is like kind of instinctively thinks of models as like take what we can get and ignore stuff that doesn't make sense, right? Um, and part of the divide is like. You know, there are there are theoretical economists, and then there are more practical, practical-minded economists or economists with more practical jobs, right? Um, like policy advisors, or you know, people doing data work for businesses or whatever. But there's a lot of people who aren't like theoretical macroeconomists, right? And so they, those people, in my experience, tend to think of of the mainstream models as like. They're trying to tell you something. There is a there there, but you don't have to take it literally, right? Yeah, and again, the, the other camp by comparison would be the people who, who work on the theory who are, are, I think, more along the lines of like, this theory captures something and if we keep working, we will make better and better theories and they will become more and more, you know, they will correspond better and better to the world. Um. Really what I think the issue is, in, in a lot of cases it is about the simplification just being bullshit, right? Like loanable funds or rational expectations. In other cases, like they, they, it's widely acknowledged that some simplification is maybe too much, but they just don't have an alternative and they really want to make models anyway, so they got to do the simplification, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Now that's where heter heterodox economists would say, we've got different priorities if the only way to make a tractable model is to do this crazy simplification, then for us, it's not worth it. We'll do something else, right? We'll do some other method of inquiry or some other method of, of discourse because then is, this tool is clearly not working for what we want, right? Uh, whereas the mainstream is more likely to say, well, we got to build models, right? So if they have to be simplified models because that's where we are at this point in time, then so be it. But, you know, maybe someday. Like, I think that was some of the, some of the reaction to the representative agent models, it became clear fairly quickly that it's totally invalid to build a model with one person and then pretend it speaks for an entire economy. There's like, they, you know, they, they proved, you think? <laughs> yeah, they proved under what conditions that that's a valid exercise and they turn out to be very, very restrictive. Like it can only work if for instance, every single person is completely identical, which is obviously not true. Um, and so the reaction is, okay, well, this is a starting place for us because someday we'll have models with more people in them, right? So we got to spend a few decades perfecting this model with one person so that we can move to the one with more people because that's what we care about is building the models, right? We'll get to realism when we can. Mm -hmm. There's a difference in priorities. Yeah, but I, but I have met quite a few practical economists who, who are like, yeah, no, I get it. It's a toy. It's a stick figure. You know, you take what you can from it and ignore the rest. And I think really that's fine. Um, the problem is, is when the take it seriously but not literally thing 
gets used to brush aside other competing work and heterodox work or whatever, right? Like there's a couple of people who run a blog that's called Price Theory and they are mainstream people and they, you know, write about like supply and demand and perfect competition and those kinds of models. And they're constantly arguing, you know, the model is useful. You should take it seriously, not literally. It's useful and it's flexible and can do all this stuff. But then if you put, and not to knock them specifically, they're reasonably nice people, but this is just an endemic problem, is they're very, very willing to cut their own model a lot of slack to say mm -hmm. like, you know, okay, ignore this blemish and ignore that little stain there. Just, you know, you get the picture, right? The big picture is what matters here. Cut us some slack. But then That's when ad hoc. That's the idea of ad hoc. It is ad hoc. Yeah, it is. But then when you come to them with some other model that they don't agree with or don't like the policy implications or something, they'll start tearing apart the details and have like a very ungenerous, you know, uncharitable interpretation and, and not be willing to cut slack to an alternative point of view. So that, that's really the problem, I think. Okay. Okay. Uh, I have a final substantial question and then I'll close out with just sort of a little bit of a fun question. Um, mainstream theory is intent. And this, again, this, this, uh, I learned part of this from Steve Keen's book, which is mainstream theory is intentionally non-specific. It's intentionally abstract. It's intentionally theoretical. And there's less emphasis on specific. There's less emphasis on practical applications. And, and actually, I think I'm also mixing up uh, John Harvey's debunking, not debunking, <laughs> John Harvey's uh, contending perspectives book, his chapter on mainstream in there. They, the primary audience of mainstream economists and their academic papers is other mainstream economists. It's like there's almost a discouragement to communicate with the outside world and which alludes to the fact that their math is intentionally dense, in my opinion. It's intentionally not understandable by average people. And yet policy all around the world is based on mainstream economics. So how can policy be based on something that is theoretical and vague and nonspecific and with which economists only communicate with themselves? They don't communicate with the outside world, I mean, roughly speaking. How is policy based on this and it seems to me to suggest that policy is whatever they want it to be because mainstream is whatever they want it to be. Assumptions are whatever they want it to be. And with Fidel's, Fidel Kaboob's work, we know that this policy is rammed down the throats of less wealthy countries as well. So I don't understand how policy is based on mainstream economics when mainstream economics is so very vague. Okay. Um, I think that critique is like a little bit too sweeping for my taste. I, I would put okay. it this way. Okay. On the issue okay. of vague, <laughs> on the issue of like vagueness, really what they're trying to do a lot of the time is to, um, to, to be general, to be, to be abstract in the sense of like, this could apply in lots of circumstances, right? So loanable funds is a perfect example. Why is it loanable funds and not like the bond market or the stock market or, you know, like well, something much more specific. Well, because for them, you know, and you you probably talked about this like institutions not mattering much thing. They want to have a general, general like abstract thing that could apply to any configuration of institutions and like, you know, 
it's not just about bonds. It's about mortgages and stocks and blah, 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 and blah, all these different kinds of lending. That's what we mean by loanable funds. It's all of them, right? Okay, never mind that that doesn't make a lot of sense. The, the point is like to be general and so you, you have to be a little vague to be general, right? Um, I mean, heterodox, especially like post-Keynesian and, and institutionalists are much more interested in the, the specifics and the realism, right? Um, other strands of heterodox economists, maybe less so. Um, but, uh, okay, so that's about vagueness. In terms of like insularity, like only talking to themselves, it's definitely true that economics papers are are written for economists and there's like a language to it. There's like an econo speak or like a, a technical jargon or whatever. I agree with you. The math is impenetrable if you haven't been trained in it. And and that includes like people who are good at math. <laughs> like, um, and I, I'm a, and, and you're technical as well. I, I was a computer programmer and I really struggled with Yepis paper. It took me a while. Uh-huh. So the whole, this whole first section is on math. Uh-huh. Um, it's, it's kind of like, uh, I think on the academic front, you know, you get into a, I don't know if groove is the right word, but people are just used to talking to each other and not to a wide audience in that setting. And I don't think there's necessarily something wrong with that. It's not necessarily bad to have like a setting where economists talk to each other. I don't think it's really true that economists only talk to each other. I mean, first of all, those journals are are the, 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 specifically those those journals that publish all that theoretical work, you know, that's theoretical economists. But then there are also like practical economists who do other stuff that write in other forums. There also are public commentators, you know, like Paul Krugman's got his New York Times column or whatever. And, and there's Bloomberg columnists and, you know, whatever. There's also, um, you know, podcasts like Freakonomics and stuff. That's economists reaching to wider audiences as well. So I don't think that the insularity thing is is quite true. It, I'm I I haven't I don't have like perspective in other sciences, so I can't really compare economics to other sciences on that front. Like I would assume that journal articles in other sciences are similarly. You know, you just get into a groove of like assuming everybody knows certain terms that you might you would explain if you were writing in the New York Times, but you wouldn't explain if you're you know publishing in. The Journal of Political sure. Economy or whatever. Sure. Um, well, I mean, but less, but less than, than take away less. I mean, it doesn't really take away from my overall question, which is forget the insularity as much of just the, the deliberately theoretical and nonspecific, which is, I think is more, is more closely accurate to what mainstream is. So how is policy, which is obviously very specific, primarily based on this extremely nonspecific and theoretical mainstream economics? Well, it's the difference between applied and theoretical. And I will say that macro is much more theoretical and actually micro is probably more applied. Like uh, um, applied micro is like the single biggest thing, as, as far as I know, at least, that that uh, econ PhDs, you know, mainstream econ PhDs, that's what they study these days is applied micro. So you, you learn the theory, but then you're trying to you know, apply it to different situations or, or studies different situations, collect data or whatever, build models for something more specific. So, so that is a thing. There is applied mainstream work. A lot, it's much more about micro than it is about macro. Um, And so they shove micro down our throats in macro policy. Well, yeah, I mean, macro is micro. Yeah, I think that answers the question. The whole micro foundations thing, macroeconomics is based on, they took micro theory and they just 
called a macro, basically. That was kind of what the 70s and the 80s were about. Okay. All right. That makes sense. That makes sense. Is there anything else you think needs to be said about assumptions before we stop? I mean, there's so much more that could be talked about. Greed, uh, uh, uncertainty, uh, ad hoc and frictions and sticky wages and all that stuff. So Yeah, I mean, the, the mainstream does have like their set of preferred assumptions. You know, like it's almost always true that in a mainstream model, preferences, like what people want is, is they don't model that. It comes from outside the model. You know, it's exogenous to the model. Uh, so preferences are an input to the model. That's almost always true. Okay. But really we might be interested in where do preferences come from and what about the feedback mechanism between like preferences and markets and vice versa and stuff, you know, like what about advertising? Like those are, you know, advertising that, that sellers do to deliberately shape preferences and, and so on and so forth. And what effects do those have? And they're just not generally too interested in, in allowing for that kind of thing. If, if the field were healthier, there would be many more approaches that would hold some things constant, but allow other things to vary. Right. And that is just, that that's what a lot of what, to some extent, at least is what the heterodox is doing. And in some cases they are able to like integrate that into the mainstream. So like behavioral economics started out on the fringe and became mainstream. And they kind of did that by, um, integrating that in a way that's not threatening so much to the core of neoclassical economics as we can say okay people might not be rational in this like see the future know everything kind of sense that you guys were talking about but that's still like that's that's only because they kind of can't and that's the goal like that's still our benchmark and we'll talk about deviations from that right whereas maybe the heterodox point of view would be like that's not a benchmark that's just made up like, you know, if we want to know how people actually are, we got to we got to go out and look and we got to understand that different people in different cultures and different time periods and institutional settings, you know, are total are very different. Like maybe this this idea that that uh, we're aspiring towards something or we would be something but just kind of can't quite is just not there. But anyway, so you they created that that extended the theory in a way that was not threatening to the core which is this, this benchmark of, of rationality or whatever. And the heterodoxy is not willing to do that. We want to say, well, we have our own benchmarks or maybe no benchmark or, or whatever. Like here are the questions that we're interested in and here are the tools that we want to use. And the mainstream has just in a lot of ways not been willing to entertain that. And to some extent, the heterodoxy, I think, has actually stopped trying. Like the heter- what the heterodoxy did is just split off and form our own journals and our own departments and barely communicate with, that, with them anymore. And so the languages have diverged. And to tie this back to MMT, that's, I think, part of the reason why mainstream is so hostile to MMT. And to some extent, it's about the things we're saying and the, and the conclusions we come to. But to a lot of extent, it's actually more, I, th- I think, about the personalities and the language we're using and the tone that we use to say it. Because they've got a system and they've got an inst- institutions and a community and there are rules and here's how you, you know, you, you're supposed to publish in the journals and blah, 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 blah. And, uh, and not communicate with the general public. And if you communicate with the general public, then you're obviously going to use much more colloquial language. 
Yeah, well, it, the idea is that the, the techno elite here decide what is valid theory. The people who run the journals and the peer reviewers and stuff get to decide what is economics. And so what MMT is doing is to sidestep that and say, we're going straight to the people. You, you guys weren't listening to us when we were trying to talk to you earlier. So what we're going to do now is just take this straight to the people, take it to the policymakers even, take it to the media and force you to pay attention to us. And I think that is more threatening to mainstream economics than probably the policy conclusions. Um, oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Because MMT is under, we were just talking about this last week and actually part four, what you're, you're going to be part two and three. And then part four is going to be with Dirk and Asker again. And we're going to, going to be talking about political economy, uh, you know, the uh, discrimination and be in pluralism and so on, which is we are going to the public because we have no chance of changing the minds of those who benefit from mainstream. So we are communicating with the public and MMT is understandable to the public and mainstream is not understandable as much to the public. And so the only hope that they have, the only hope that mainstream has is to get people, general public, to ignore MMT out of hand to dismiss them out of hand, because if they pay attention to us, then clearly we're, they, we have the more compelling argument and the one that obviously makes sense to the general public. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think the economic, like the elite of the economics profession is not so like, if they really stop to think about it, is not so threatened by MMT. Like they could get on board with MMT and then keep doing their jobs, but you know, talking about MMT compliant stuff, MMT really threatens more um, the power structure of like the elites, like the rentier class, you know, the capitalist class maybe, um, or just like the exploiters and grifters out there in the world, I think are much more uh, threatened by the MMT theory. But what MMT as a, as a movement threatens is the power structure in the economics profession, <laughs> because right. we're going around them. We're saying like, okay, well, this didn't work this way. So we're going around you. We don't need you, you know? And so that's where I think a lot of the resistance is coming from. And then part of it also is the language. Like I said, the languages have drifted. And so we, we're using words in different ways. And like, it's a little more clear to us about that because like you, we, as, as the fringe, we have to study what they're doing they yeah. don't have to study what we are doing until we, yeah. you know, we have to be experts in yeah. both. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and so the, so the language issues are more apparent to us than they are to them, but that's where some of the confusion comes from. Hmm. Okay, great. All right. So that, that's wonderful. Thank you. I think that covered, you know, we could go on and on with, with so many other things. Um, but I think that that was a good taste of, of mainstream assumptions. So that's, that's wonderful. Thank you for that. Um, I want to end on a, mildly silly question, but it is real. It is real. Uh, and it is MMT related. And okay. So I've been wanting to ask you this for months. Uh, I have it on good authority and you happen to be that authority that you have a pie under your bed and specifically a raspberry pie and that it has been there for years and it is related to MMT. So can you please share? Who told you that? Who gave you that information? You told me that. <laughs> uh, yes, I, I can confirm. The rumors are true. There is a pie under my bed. It is a raspberry pie. Uh, in case and it has been there for years. It has been there for years. It smells terrible. Um, no, it doesn't. <laughs> um, if, if your listeners aren't familiar, a raspberry pie is a tiny computer. It's a little microcontroller, microcomputer. It's maybe like, I don't know, it's about the size of the palm of your hand, maybe. 
um, in a little box. And what it does is, uh, what my Raspberry Pi does is run it, uh, the Deficit Owls Twitter account. So if you if you look on the Deficit Owls Twitter feed, some of the tweets are you know composed or retweets or whatever. But also a couple times a day, it just tweets out a video. Um, the idea being to keep those videos of MMT lessons like, you know, in circulation and put them on people's timelines and stuff. And so that's what the little Raspberry Pi under my bed does. It's been doing for a couple of years now. It's, it's very, very reliable. I don't think it's gone down once. Um, and wow. uh, yeah, it just, it just uh, composes and send lo- sends those tweets a few times a day. It's very, very handy to, to automate your life. If you're looking to automate things that uh, are vaguely computer controllable, then uh, look into the Raspberry Pi. Hmm. how many like what's the 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 universe of things available to it like how many links or tweets or whatever it is does it choose from um yeah it's got a couple hundred on the list i think um how often do you edit it i guess is is the additional question i used to do it a little more regularly but i kind of stopped i think the 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 um latest innovation from over a year ago now probably was that I added, it doesn't just do videos anymore, but now it actually does research papers as well. So mm. it'll, it'll occasionally tweets MMT literature, uh, like uh, primary sources, which is pretty cool. But it's essentially just a link in a description, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a tweet, you know, that's got some text that might have a description or a link or whatever in it. Um, I actually programmed like a very complicated interface to be able to add the tweets, there's like a form that I pro that I created and you fill out like what the tweet should say. And then it's, it'll show you a list. And then I don't know, sometimes I go crazy when I'm bored, but I haven't had <laughs> quite so much time for like fun programming projects in a while. So, but you don't have a programming background per se, right? Um, not like an official one, but, uh, you know, I think at some point they just started teaching most kids to program and I was particularly interested in it. So I've kind of had programming as a hobby for most of my life. And I, I would not say I like am, have any formal training in software engineering, but like I can usually walk up to code and try and figure out what it's doing and how to get it to and work. You just, and, and you just stumbled on a Raspberry Pi? Oh, um, I don't know. I'd heard about them for a while and I huh. eventually came up with a use for to get one. I used to, I, I, a coworker of mine years ago had a Raspberry Pi run his, uh, I believe it was his HVAC system in his home. Oh, wow. That's bold. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, that, he, yeah he is, he's a hardcore computer programmer. Um, so, okay. Uh, Sam, this has been great. I, I thank you so much for coming on. This is sort of our year anniversary or actually very close to our year anniversary um, podcast wise. Uh, so uh, thank you so much for uh telling me all that stuff it, it, it's there's there's so much to learn i actually uh looking into john harvey's work of uh you know uh exchange rate determination is he has a really wonderful five-page section on post-keynesian uh just general post-keynesian economics uh which is where the s equals i at full employment comes which i'll show you later uh and that inspired me for the first time because he has a chapter he then has a chapter on mainstream uh, trade equilibrium, I forget the terminology, but their models regarding exchange, foreign exchange. And that chapter, his writing is fine, but that chapter is a nightmare to read because partially because it's disconnected from reality. 
so that that's what started my journey into you know diving into mainstream into finally you know learning what mainstream is about so this has been extremely helpful and uh thank you so much for coming on i'll give you some advice though uh don't waste too much time on it (laughs) um because a lot of it's not very good and you can't get that time back you know um so i i would just you know take it or leave it whatever you want to do but my personal suggestion would be focus on the history um, of, of mainstream economics, macro, if that's what you're interested in. Um, don't feel like you need to learn the ins and outs of the models, uh, if you don't want to. But, okay. So, but, but it's, you have to be able to somewhat understand how to read a model and how to be able to understand to some extent, the math that is perpetually thrown at you by these mainstream things. So I wonder where, I don't know if you can like answer this, but I, like, where is that balance of being able to like, you know, if you study the history, that doesn't necessarily mean that you could see an academic article that criticizes MMT from a mainstream point of view and be able to, you know, understand what it's saying without, I, I mean, I don't know, you know, I guess you'll just, I'll just figure that out as you go. But it seems, it seems that you do to an extent have to become an expert <laughs> in order to be able to stand up to a mainstream person who says an MMT is terrible. And then they throw mainstream excuses in your face of why MMT is terrible. So how do you, you know, that seems to be a very easy weapon for them to throw at you. Well, it depends on what you want to do though. Right, Jeff? Like, okay. It sounds like what you really want to do is respond to mainstream economists who are critiquing MMT. So if that's what you want to do, then you're going to maybe need to dig a bit deeper into that stuff than somebody who just wants to know how the economy actually works would need to do. Right. Although even still, you don't necessarily, okay, first of all, almost always the way modeling kind of happens is that there's like a sort of foundational model or baseline model, and then they come up with extensions on top of that. And so what you personally would probably be interested in, Jeff, is like maybe those baselines. Like if you feel like you really need to know how this stuff works, then you could learn like the bare bones RBC model or the bare bones New Keynesian model or something Hmm. and not have to worry about like all the crazy different extensions that they throw on top of it or whatever. Right. Like that's one route you can go if you, if you feel like you really want to go that way. But like Hmm. I said, and I guess actually to cut my, to cut myself off another, (laughs) another source that's surprisingly good for understanding what's going on in, in mainstream models is, is the critiques, right? Because in the, in the papers where they're actually doing the model, you're going to get bogged down in like, here's how the model works, all the minutia, the details and whatever, whatever. Uh, whereas a critique, you, I mean, you have to be careful because obviously critique is a critique. They have a point of view. And so, you know, critique they, of MNT, a critique, critique of, of a mainstream what? model. Oh, okay. Right. If you want to know how the mainstream model works, one way to do it is to read a critique because chances are good that a critique mm. is may or may not probably is less likely to like dive into those minutia, those details, and more likely to say like from a high level, here's what the problem is. Right. Okay. And so, yeah, and so sense. just in the process of that, they're summarizing it at a high level. Right. So that, that makes could sense. be useful to you. Sure. Yeah. That, no, that makes sense. But and, again, and my, my thinking. Me, yeah. Go ahead. Don't forget, go ahead. <laughs> okay. 
my thinking is more of of a little more confident general public people who throw those kinds of things in your face. Not, I don't mean to stand up to an economist directly, but I just mean to the general public who comes at you with overconfidence in the wrong stuff. That's that's more of my thinking. But sure. I, and I, so I think you're focusing on core models of of the ones that you just mentioned. Probably is a good way to go about it to get a taste for that kind of stuff. Well, yeah. Again, I mean, it's about what you want to get out of it, and also you can keep in mind, like, there's a division of labor in our in our movement. I mean, we are a joint effort to promote MMT and we all have parts to play in it. I have my part and you have yours. And so we divide up the labor and, you know, not every single person who's in our movement has to be able to like tear apart a mathematical model. I mean, even a lot of the times, even the economists aren't so much interested in that because they're more interested in like, how does the economy actually work? And what are the principles here? And, and so even of the economists, there's like a subset like I'm probably one of the more like I'm interested in diving into math problems because I just think that's fun. But, you know, not everybody's going to do that and, and nor do we need them to. So we got to be a little bit strategic. Like you should play to your to your strengths here. And so like, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I don't think they're telling you anything you don't know. I know you're good at this, but like I would I would caution you to avoid the temptation to fall down the rabbit hole just because you can. And instead, I would say, think strategically about where, where your talents will help us best. And if, if you think that requires you to learn these models, then by all means, go for it. Don't let me stop you. But if not, don't worry about it, you know? And especially for listeners who are just like, just actually want to know how the economy works, probably have, you know, what will work for you to try to understand what mainstream economists have been saying might be to look at textbooks that have like a high level summary or critiques that have summaries. And that's probably sufficient for a lot of your listeners. Hmm. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. You you can only go so far down the rabbit hole of the wrong stuff without losing your sanity, let alone losing touch with, you know, what MMT actually has to show us about the reality of how things work. So yeah, and there's also like act- levels of necessity here. Like if you're writing a research paper, you're writing a rebuttal, and you know, then you need to cite stuff and you need to understand things. And you need to have some familiarity with the literature. On the other hand, if you're getting into an argument on Twitter, then you know. Like uh-huh. you just have to understand the argument that you're making and you have to know who you can call in for reinforcements if it gets out of, out of your, you know, out of your wheelhouse or whatever. So, yeah. That's great. And actually you've sort of kind of, uh, bring us full circle to our episode one, which was about the movement really about, about, you know, the MMT movement and community itself. So we'll, we'll end it there. Um, thank you so much for talking with me. This has been great. And, uh, a lot of the questions have been nagging at me for quite a while. I feel like I now have a much better handle on. So thanks a lot, Sam. My pleasure. Hope it was helpful. And uh, yeah, always delighted. All right. See you later. All right. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. For this show is by Rectech. You can find Rectech on SoundCloud and Spotify at W-R-E-C-K underscore T-E-C-H. To record Activist MMT, I use the iOS phone app Tape a Call Plus for recording phone calls and Zencaster for internet-based recordings. My post-production workflow starts by editing on the iOS app AnyTune Pro Plus 
then transferring those timestamps to my Windows desktop. At that point, I crudely process the audio in Audacity and then implement the edits and do all of the final processing in the Reaper digital audio workstation. Activist MMT is hosted by Libsyn and the video teasers are created with the online Headliner app. Today is part two of my two-part conversation with Sam Levy on the fundamental assumptions that underlie mainstream or neoclassical economics. Sam is a research scholar with the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity, a PhD candidate in economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, or UMKC, and a co-founder of the online advocacy group Deficit Owls. Much more information and resources can be found in the show notes to part one, but for now, Let's get right back to our conversation.